Chapter 7 Epilogue At ten o'clock in the morning on the last Friday of December, Joe Smith slammed the phone down with an almighty thud. He had just been talking to Jason at the Mungus elevator about setting the basis on some of the corn he had been forced to bring into the elevator during harvest because he didn't have enough room for it in his own on-farm bins. The little turd had said, You know, Joe, it's important for you to focus your marketing efforts on achieving a profitable price and not be concerned about basis. Basis is not the producer's opportunity. It sounded like he was reading off a page or something. When farmers like you start looking at the basis in making your marketing decisions, you tend to lose sight of your real objective, which is selling for a profit. Price is the farmer's opportunity. Basis is the elevator's. By keeping the two separate, we both win. Meanwhile, the latest schmuck who called himself an expert on the Ag News website Joe subscribed to was saying, Farmers don't care about futures. They're either only watching the flat price, or they're already hedged and they only care about basis. What? Joe wanted to scream at his computer screen. How about all of the above? Nobody was that good at predicting how much grain they could raise before they raised it. Nobody was ever perfectly hedged, and so no farmer only cared about basis. And even if that were so, he'll still care quite a bit about the number on the check he'll be receiving for his grain, whether he looked at it as just a flat price or as a function of futures and basis together. It was maddening enough not only to make Joe's head hurt, but also to flat-out tick him off. True, the flat price could account for 90% of Joe's annual income that year, but every five cents per bushel he saved by not paying the Mungus folks for their latest DP, also known as Dumb Producer, scheme on 100,000 bushels was equivalent to his family's much-needed annual vacation. Every ten cents of basis appreciation he captured by watching the seasonal patterns of his local market accounted for two semesters of his daughter's college education. Every fifty cents of carry in the market he was able to capture by storing his own grain and earning the futures spreads was equivalent to a new pickup truck or the yearly mortgage payments on that quarter of land he'd just bought. Jason had said that Dale— the elevator manager, was out of the office fixing something at the elevator's dump pit, so Joe decided to just send Dale an email about the basis level he was willing to accept on those storage bushels. He had never sold grain by email before, but what the heck, he just wanted to get the sale over with. After one of the most nerve-wracking growing seasons of his life, the dry spring, the hot pollination weather, and one of the longest harvests he could remember, having to rely on his neighbor's charity had been no picnic, Joe knew his job wasn't done. He had to get the grain marketed. And even once he had all of this year's grain sold, there would always be next year's, and the years after that, and so on and so forth, in a never-ending pattern. He really just wanted that vacation. So when he got Dale's emailed response a few hours later, he read it with mixed feelings. Joe, sure, I can write up the contract at that level. We'll probably be posting there in a few days anyway. Are you coming to the New Year's Eve party? A party. 
Joe had the habitual introversion of someone who was used to spending all day every day making his own decisions about what to do, where to go, and who to talk to or not talk to, but there would probably be free beer. Of course Joe Smith was going to Dale's New Year's Eve party, whether he wanted to or not. His wife would make sure of that. So when Saturday night rolled around, he put on his new khakis. Becky had bought them for him at Macy's on one of her post-harvest shopping sprees, and a nice plaid shirt, and helped her carry several trays of deviled eggs out to the car. When they pulled up in Dale's yard, Joe recognized most of the parked vehicles and the silhouettes of the people he saw walking in the garage door, like old Leonard Stern and his wife, Artis, who were just entering the pool of light from the yard lamp. Stern had his leathery, paw-like hand on the small of Artis's back as she minced toward the door. Those two people had spent every day of the past sixty years together, much of it as dairy farmers. They both had to feed and milk cows for several hours twice a day, every day, together. And they still seemed not only to tolerate each other, but to be genuinely fond of each other's company. Sixty years of weaknesses, complaints, and faults, and they still smiled at the opportunity to go to a party together. Joe suspected not many big city types would be able to pull that off, no matter how much they thought they loved their spouses. There were other people already mingling around the keg once Joe and Becky walked in. Dale himself, Lindsay Kearney with her mother-in-law Shirley, Gary Green, the banker Rodney Brune, Jason from the Mungus Elevator with some girl who couldn't have been more than 18 years old, and some overdressed tall guy Joe had never seen before. In pinstripe suit pants, he seemed a little hesitant to sit down on any of the dusty folding chairs Dale had scattered around. As it happened, Dale's mother-in-law, Irene Loomis, had a sister, Dee, who had recently been diagnosed with skin cancer and convinced herself and her whole family that her death was imminent. So she browbeat all of her extended family to coming home to Iowa for Christmas, to be gathered around her one last time. Among those kin was none other than Bob Albany from Chicago, who hadn't been to Springfield, Iowa in 40 years and had very little intention of ever returning. He was the guy in the pinstripe pants. Once he'd reminded himself that it was always better to be overdressed than underdressed, and once he'd negotiated with his host that, no, he really preferred to drink the scotch he'd brought along rather than drink the free keg beer, Bob finally settled into the event and decided he should try to get some financial benefit out of the situation. It was unlikely he'd find any new clients here for his antitrust litigation firm on Wacker Drive, but... Bob figured he might possibly get an inside line on some great grain trade from one of these farmer-looking guys. First, however, he spent half an hour explaining to his cousin from Jacksonville, who was woefully underdressed for a Midwestern winter night in cargo shorts, how those commodity ETFs were a waste of time and that he should be making futures trades instead. Okay, so let's say I started my account with $20,000, and let's say I just threw all that $20,000 into some grains ETF, right? Some fund that tracks some index of corn, soybean, and wheat prices. I'm guessing your financial advisor told you you ought to diversify into commodities, right? Well, yeah, you got to diversify. God knows with this stock market anymore. I don't want my whole friggin' retirement fund stuck in that hole. 
Right. So get into commodities, somebody tells you. So you sink your 20,000 bucks into some grains ETF. Let me tell you, over the past year, your 20,000 bucks would have turned into 15,000 bucks. Return? Bupkis. Non-correlation to the stock market? <laughs> I guess. But listen here, if you did what I did, if you actually traded these grains, you'd be rolling in the dough. It occurred to Bob that he was starting to sound like his own brother-in-law from last year's Christmas dinner, and that, like his brother-in-law, he was about to conveniently leave out all the stories about the stupid trades and the uncomfortable losses of his futures trading adventures in order to make himself sound cool. But he did it anyway. So at harvest, right? All these guys standing around here, they just harvested their corn a couple of months ago, and there was just a crap load of the stuff. I'm talking more corn than anybody knew what to do with. Prices took a nosedive. If you had all your cash locked up in that ETF, you were losing money. But if you were me, you shorted the futures market. You don't need prices to go up to make money. You just got to be smart enough to figure out what direction prices are going to go. Grain prices went down, and I made a 20% return on my account this year. Hell, I made that 20% return on that one trade in one month. Bob and his cousin had been standing near the keg, where Joe Smith happened to overhear their conversation, and in a very out-of-character moment, he decided to speak up. Oh, so you are that guy. The two out-of-town men looked over at the farmer. Bob said, Huh? What guy? the guy who's been driving down my grain prices. Intuiting that he had waded too loudly into a sensitive subject, Bob backpedaled a little. Well, I mean, an efficient market is always going to find the true price of an asset, no matter what a little old guy like me does on any given day. Joe just laughed and slapped Bob on the shoulder. I'm just pulling your leg, man. I don't care what the futures market does from this point on. I've got my grain pretty much all hedged. Bob finally took a full breath and nodded. Okay, so you're a farmer. They all introduced themselves, and Gary Green, who had been standing with Joe talking about some tiling equipment, spoke up. Well, it sure as heck bugs the crap out of me. I know corn's worth more than four fifty. If you jackass speculators wouldn't make the markets jump around so much, we'd probably get it. And Joe, I know you don't have all your grain price neither. I saw you taking the temperature of a bin full of corn just the other day when I was driving past. Yeah, but I've got that all hedged. Anything I didn't have sold in March, I hedged it all in the middle of July at six fifty. Now Gary was just mad. He'd sold all his grain off the combine at harvest for four seventy five, except for the twenty thousand bushels he put on DP for a ten cent fee and which had only continued dropping in value. It ticked him off to think his neighbor was standing around bragging about some mythical price that never existed. He knew Joe had to be lying. Nobody was that good to get within five cents of the futures high, to say nothing of the basis that probably shaved some sense off of that. Gary saw Jason walking away from the keg with three red cups of beer in his hand, and he pulled him into the conversation. Jason, hey, you tell me, did Joe here sell all his corn at six fifty? Jason shook his head. No way. Not to us, anyway. Our bid never got higher than 635, and I happen to know that not even Cedar Rapids got higher than 645. No way somebody sold corn for 650. Well, I did, and here's how. 
Joe took a drink of his beer and explained to his little audience how, on July 13th, when the crops looked good and he was pretty sure he would raise at least 100,000 bushels of corn, he had called his broker to put in a limit order to sell 20 December corn futures contracts at 650 or better. The market hit that level the very next day, at the same time that the Mungus elevator was bidding 630, a 20-under-the-deece basis bid, for harvest corn delivery. Over the next few days, the futures contract lingered at or just below 650, and the Mungus elevator strengthened its harvest bid to 15-under-the-December, accounting for the 635 level that Jason remembered as their highest cash price of the year. At that time, the Cedar Rapids ethanol plant was bidding five under the deece for November corn, representing the best cash bid of the year anywhere in the state. But Joe never locked in his basis level that early, or indeed at any time, until the day before the party. Instead, he held on to his short December futures position, which made him a $2 per bushel hedge profit while the market collapsed and then he rolled it over to the March futures contract because he had no intention of trucking most of his corn to town until after the month of December had passed. In the process of buying December futures at 450 and selling March futures at 465, Joe gained an extra 15 cents of carry per bushel to reimburse him for storing his grain a few more months. When he eventually locked in the basis for his spring corn delivery with Dale in late December, the Mungus elevator wrote up the contract at 15 under the March. So, $6.50 futures, minus 15 cents of basis, minus $2 loss on the cash market, plus a $2 profit on the futures position, plus 15 cents of carry spread between the futures contracts, equals a $6.50 per bushel equivalent financial outcome for Joe Smith, even though the Mungus elevator would actually be sending him a check for $4.35 corn. That's the four fifty minus $0.15 cents of basis. In the telling of his marketing glory, Joe managed to annoy his neighbor Gary, who had predicted the wrong futures direction and who had given up the carry and paid fees and transportation costs for the benefit of deferred pricing with no room for basis negotiation. Joe had also confused his new friends from out of town, who had never heard of basis, and flummoxed the young merchandiser Jason, who considered basis trading and capturing the carry to be his own private domain. So Joe decided it was a good time to go to the restroom. As he walked through the kitchen to get to the bathroom, he noticed Dale's mother-in-law, Irene, about to cut an onion at the counter. A few kids were gathered around her, and she was explaining. By tomorrow morning, we'll know how much rain will fall each month in the new year. That got Joe's attention. He stopped and watched her bisect the onion down its axis and pull it apart into twelve little white cups setting them in two rows of six along the counter, with the biggest cups on the left. She instructed one of the little girls to stand on a stool so she could reach the counter and put a teaspoon of salt into each cup. Irene smiled and said, Now the salt will draw some water out of each cup, and each cup represents a month of the new year. If there's a lot of water in one month's cup, that will be a rainy month. If the cup stays dry, no rain that month. Huh said Joe. That works? Works every year of my life for the past 40 years. 
Well, most of the time. I write it all down in my calendar, just like I write down when it's foggy, and ninety days later there will be snow, or rain. Or the locusts. Cicadas, yes. When you hear those ugly insects start to buzz in the summer, frost will be six weeks away. Joe found himself staring at those onion cups and counting out which ones represented June, July, and August. Of course, he didn't believe in such nonsense, but he found himself willing some water to pool up in those little white cups. Irene chuckled and patted him on the shoulder as she walked out of the kitchen, following the scattering children. It'll be okay, Joe. It always rains after a dry spell. And he knew she was right. When spring came around next year, the smell of the fresh soil would waft up to him from his planter's coulters, and he would have yet another shot at trading the fruits of his labors for the best value he could get. Joe Smith was optimistic that all the years of his life would give him the chance to produce food for the world and to maybe, just maybe, make a living at it along the way.